A man was driving down the interstate when he noticed an Indian lying right in the middle of the road. His ear was stuck to the pavement. The man stopped to investigate. And as he approached the Indian, he heard him mumbling, large wheels, huge tires, Ford pickup, green color, man driving with large dog next to him, Alabama license plate, 80 miles per hour. The guy was astonished. He said, wow, you mean you can tell all that by listening with your ear to the ground? That's when the Indian looks up at him and says, what do you mean my ear to the ground? You got to be kidding. That's the description of the truck that just ran over me. I thought that was funny. Micah certainly had his ear to the ground. Rather, we might say his ear to the heavens. He was faithful to prophesy and proclaim the warnings that he had heard from God. But even if those warnings had never been uttered, the Hebrew nations should have realized the signs of the times, that God's judgment was a coming. You see, the region had already been hit by a truck. The Assyrian army had gone on the warpath. Assyria began her campaign of conquest in the year 745 B.C. And for the next 100 years, every king east of the Euphrates River lived in mortal fear. By 732 B.C., the Assyrian had conquered much of the land bridge linking Asia and Africa. Philistia had fallen, as had Damascus, the capital of the Syrians. The two Hebrew capitals would be next. Samaria, the capital of Israel, and Judah, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. It was in the mid, or oh, the mid-half of the 8th century B.C., that God sent a flurry of prophets to warn His people that judgment was on the doorstep. Among those prophets was Amos, and Hosea, and Isaiah, and Micah. And these men trumpeted God's judgment during this critical time. For 200 years, God had tolerated idolatry in Israel and in Judah, but now His patience had run out. Judgment would come on both these nations unless the people repented. The book of Micah is divided into three sections, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and chapters 6 and 7. Each section begins with the word here. And it follows a similar structure. It begins with a condemnation of sin. It's followed by a proclamation of judgment. And it ends with an affirmation of God's love in future restoration. Let's dig into the book. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah ministered from around 735 to 700 BC. He spoke to both the Hebrew nations and to especially their capitals, Samaria and Jerusalem. Understand, like Amos, Micah was also a country boy who had been sent to the big city to confront kings and priests. His hometown, Marashef, was a farming village about 25 miles southeast of Jerusalem. Micah's goal was to come to the city and weed out sin and reap a harvest of souls. The meaning of the word Micah is revealing. 
It also designates the theme of the message. The word Micah means who is like Jehovah. And this is the issue that preoccupies the prophet in his book. You see, his intent in this book is to vindicate the Lord's character. He wants to prove God's goodness and his greatness that no one is like the Lord. You see, on the one hand, God is pure and holy and would not be true to his name or nature if he did not judge sin. On the other hand, God is kind and loving and forgiving. And if his people repent, God will show mercy toward them. You see, no one is like the Lord. He is without peer in the fierceness of his wrath, but likewise in the lavishness of his love. Cross him and you feel his unparalleled power. Embrace the cross of Jesus and you'll know his incomparable love. Micah begins his prophecy with a bang. Verse 3 rolls out the red carpet in a way you've probably never seen before. God descends from heaven, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. The Lord will descend to judge his people and natural catastrophes will follow. Revelation chapter 16 verse 20 tells us that prior to the second coming of Jesus, God will also judge the earth with cataclysmic upheavals, natural disasters. The Apostle John writes, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. You see, Micah is like most of the Old Testament prophets. His prophecies had a twofold fulfillment. He addresses an immediate local situation, but the immediate foreshadows events that will take place at the end of the age. Micah's prophecies, like many of the Old Testament prophecies, have both a contemporary and a future fulfillment. Micah here sees the Lord coming to bring judgment on Israel and Judah, foreshadowing the judgment he'll bring upon the whole earth at the end of the age. What he also sees does indeed depict the Lord descending in judgment. The Lord's descent occurs at different times in different ways. Verse 5 tells us why the Lord is descending from his heavenly throne. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? In other words, as the capital cities go, so go these nations. Samaria was a microcosm of Israel. Judah, Jerusalem is Judah in a nutshell. And it's because of the sin in these two cities that God is going to judge their respective nations. And for what sin will God's hammer fall on these people? Well, verse 7 tells us, it says of Samaria, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. You see, Samaria's sin was idolatry, or what we've learned to be the equivalent of spiritual harlotry. You see, her passions had betrayed her God. She had gone to bed with other gods, other lovers. She had failed to serve the Lord alone. 
Verse 9 also indicts Jerusalem for the very same sin. He says, For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The sin of the northern kingdom had spread south, and an incurable idolatry reached epidemic proportions, and it infected not only the northern kingdom of Israel, but her southern neighbor Judah. You see, both nations violated the first two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. These nations were guilty on both counts. And yet in the midst of these indictments, it's interesting to note Micah's attitude toward these judgments. Does he stand there with his arms folded and with this glaring sort of I told you so look on his face? Not on your life. Is he cruel? Is he self-righteous? Not at all. Does he take joy in the pain of others? Not hardly. Micah cries out in verse 8. He says, therefore, I will wail. I will howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. In his commentary on the book of Micah, Walter Kaiser writes, Micah is not a dispassionate observer, steeled against the terrors he predicts. Instead, he is so torn apart by the grief that was to come that he wails like a banshee and howls like a jackal as he goes about naked in a state of deep despair. You see, Micah was torn up over the fact that God's people were about to be torn apart. If we had heard Micah's teaching on cassette tape, we would have assumed that Micah was the chief mourner at a funeral. You see, in the ancient world, when going got tough, the prophet would also, the prophet would at times appear in the buff. That didn't come out right because I stumbled over it. But when times got tough, the prophet appeared in the buff. Now you got it. Nakedness was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of grief and despair. And you see, God had revealed to Micah the bare facts, the naked truth about the condition of the people. He knew that they had sinned and they were about to be judged. And that's why Micah walked about naked and weeped and wailed and howled. In essence, Micah was a microcosm of God's heart. We could call him a Micahcosm. You see, God is never pleased to bring judgment on His people. It grieves Him deeply. God would rather bless us. God would rather forgive us and pardon us. You see, God mourns for rebellious people in the same way that Micah did. Now, in the rest of chapter 1, Micah predicts God's judgment on 12 cities of Judah. And most of these 12 cities were within about a 10-mile radius of Micah's hometown of Morasheth. One detail to note here, Micah was one of the most articulate and one of the most graphic of the prophets. And here's a good example. To capture the attention of his readers, he uses a series of word plays, some puns, some alliterations. Micah uses the pun to predict God's punishment. For example, verse 10, the city Gath, the word Gath means to announce. In essence, Micah says, announce it not into announce. 
Beth Arpa, for example, means house of dust. Here he says, those who live in the house of dust will be rolled in dust. Look to in verse 11, Zanon means to go out. In essence, Micah says the inhabitants of go out will stay in. He uses these word plays. I sort of got inspired and played on this a bit myself this past week, and I came up with some interesting parallels. If God called me to speak judgments against the cities surrounding me here in Stone Mountain, Georgia, I might say, a gust of wind will level Augusta. I might say that. All is not well in Roswell. Look at the sins in Athens. Snellville ain't far from Halesville. Judgment is headed to Buckhead. Lilburn better turn or burn. Norcross needs the cross. Swanee will sing its swan song. Duluth has rejected the truth. Monroe has got to go. Stone Mountain has taken God for granted. You get the point. This was what Micah was doing. He was using puns to forecast punishment. In chapter 2, Micah continues to enumerate the people's sin. They plot to steal other people's land. They tell the prophets to shut up. They don't want to hear the truth. Verse 6 says, Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy. The Hebrew word translated prattle means to drool or to drip. The prophets had become to them a dripping faucet. They were annoyed. They were bothered by the prophets. The truth had convicted their conscience. The truth had confronted them with their sin. People don't like that. Sadly, rather than repent, they tried to shut up the prophet, tried to turn off the faucet and silence their message. I love how Micah answers them in verse 7. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? In other words, who are you to tell God what he can and cannot say? Who are you to try to shut God up or silence his message? Who do you think you are? It's interesting, the Holy Spirit will never worry about being politically correct. Verses 8 and 9 describe their lack of compassion on the poor. Creditors and bill collectors went out not just to confiscate a man's coat, but they took both his coat and his robe from him. Landlords were kicking women and orphans out in the street. It reminds me of a newspaper article I read out of Austin, Texas. Landlord John Mattingly, Jr., 26, in October served an eviction notice on his grandmother, Dorothy Webb, 85, for non-payment of rent. She said in court, I guess I'm not dying fast enough for him. You're pretty low, man, when you evict your grandma. That's pretty tragic. Reminds me of the fellow who was passing through the subdivision raising money for a destitute neighbor. See, the father had lost the job, and they were behind on their rent. And at one house, this lady complimented the man. She said, boy, I think you're so nice for going around doing this for your family, for this family. You must be a true friend. The man answered, no, no, I'm just their landlord. Boy, the jokes are getting nowhere tonight, are they? (laughs) 
Both Israel and Judah were full of greedy, impatient landlords who were ripping off the people. And this is why God promises to evict both kingdoms from the land he has given them. Assyria did indeed sack Samaria in 722 B.C. Babylon would conquer Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Even though both kingdoms fall, God promises in verse 12 to reassemble them. One day, he'll gather the Hebrews like sheep in a fold. This word translated fold in verse 12 of chapter 2 is the name Basra. And you'll remember it's Basra or Petra down near the Dead Sea where the Jews will hide from the Antichrist in the last days. I love the name God gives himself in verse 13. The one who breaks open. Don't you like that? God is the one who breaks open. Put God in a box and hey, he'll break it open. Try to limit or restrict God and he'll break out of your restraints. When you encounter a personal bondage, remember that God is the one who breaks open. He lives in your heart. He'll shatter the chains that hold you down. He'll enable you to be free. God is the one who breaks open. Chapter 3 is a message to the rulers of Judah and Israel. You see, the greatest plague for a nation to endure are ungodly leaders. Throughout history, that's the way it's often been. As the old adage puts it, right forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. And here is God's word to the Hebrew rulers. Here's their first problem, verse 2. You who hate good and love evil. Isn't it tragic when people get it confused? When people hate good and love evil. These leaders abuse their power. They take advantage of the people. Read the chapter. They're vicious and they're brutal. And yet in the end, they'll get the same treatment that they've dished out to others. Verses 6 and 7 predict the day when the false prophets will have nothing to say. God's judgment will will prove that their predictions had been false. That they had been self-conceived. The end of chapter 3 describes the depth of the corruption that existed In the high places of Israel, the judges, the priests, were both on the take. In other words, you could buy a verdict if you had enough money. You could go to the priest and buy a sermon that you wanted to hear if the price was right. The judges solicited these bribes. The priests favored the biggest tithers. Hey, the leaders of the land had sold out justice and truth for a measly dollar. Let's try this one more time. It reminds me of the fellow who was a real miser. You know, he kept his money in a mattress, all $300,000 of it. Before he died, though, he called his doctor and his congressman and his pastor to his bedside. And he told them, you know, they say you can't take it with you, but I'm going to try. And he handed each man an envelope with $100,000 cash in the envelope. And he said, just before they close the casket on me, what I want you to do is to throw the envelope into the casket. I can trust you guys. I know it. Well, all three men were at the funeral and all three men did toss in an envelope. But after the funeral, they had a few confessions to make. The doctor said, well, guys, you know, I needed the money for some hospital equipment. 
And so I kept the cash and I, I threw in an empty envelope. The congressman, he confessed, well, you know, I had a few campaign debts I had to pay off. And so I, too, threw in an empty envelope. The pastor, he shook his head and he said, gentlemen, I am astonished that both of you are nothing more than criminals. I'll have you know my envelope contained the whole amount. I dropped in a personal check. Verse 12 makes it clear that it's because of the corruption in high places that Jerusalem will be plowed and will become barren. The city will become ruins. Now remember the pattern that's repeated throughout Micah. A condemnation of sin followed by a proclamation of judgment ending with an affirmation of God's love and future blessing. And the next affirmation comes here in chapter 4. Micah looks to the distant future. He foresees the kingdom of God. He predicts the day when Jesus will reign from the temple in Jerusalem. Read through the section. All the nations will flock to worship the Lord. They'll learn from Him. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus will teach God's ways and proclaim God's word. Verse 3 says that He'll judge the nations and end all war. He'll beat swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. Verse 4 tells us that Jesus will usher in an age of peace. All the earth will worship the one true God. This is why John wrote in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's these glories, it's the comforts of the future age that causes us to want the Lord to come back soon. We long for the day when wrong will be on the scaffold and right will be on the throne. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, today we get excited when we recognize the signs that point to Jesus' soon coming. The kingdom that will follow. And yet the Jews of Micah's day, the glorious kingdom age was still a dream. They were facing some harsh judgments. And in verse 9 here of chapter 4, Judah is compared to a woman in labor. The nation will experience a period of increasing pain before relief will come. In fact, verse 10 predicts that Judah will be taken captive to Babylon. We're told there the Lord will redeem you. You remember what happened. You remember the Jews were taken to Babylon in three waves. In 605, in 597, and in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and deported Jews back to the land of the Euphrates. They returned to the land also in three waves. Led by Zerubbabel in 535 B.C., by Ezra the priest in 458 B.C., and by Nehemiah in 445 B.C. Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4, they leap forward to a day yet future when many nations will gather against Jerusalem. What those nations don't realize is that God has drawn them together for a day of judgment. And with His assistance, Israel will win. You know, as world sentiment becomes increasingly hostile toward Israel, such a scenario is becoming more and more likely every day. The Bible tells us that the war for Jerusalem will be the world's final battle. Micah's point in chapter 5, verse 1, is that God will save Judah, but first she needs to be spanked. Micah says, God has laid siege against us. 
They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on his cheek. Israel must be struck. Then she'll be saved. And that's what is promised by God in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Understand. 730 years before the fact, Micah foresees the Savior and he predicts the exact location of Jesus' birthplace. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem, asking about the whereabouts of their Messiah, the chief priests and the scribes search the Scriptures and they find this verse, Micah chapter 5, Verse 2, and they quote it, for they realized that Micah said that the Messiah's birthplace would be Bethlehem of Ephrathah. That's the equivalent, by the way, of saying Atlanta, Georgia. Bethlehem was the city. Ephrathah was the larger region or district. Notice Micah is amazed that such a small and insignificant city would be the one chosen by God to host Messiah's birth. This is why... Every Christmas we sing, O little town of Bethlehem. As cities go, she was little among thousands, as Micah puts it. God chose humble beginnings for the child who was to be the one to be ruler in Israel. But that's not the end of the prophecy. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but his birth is not his beginning. Verse 2 adds, Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You see, the word translated everlasting here means from eternity on. It's an immeasurable duration. Buzz Lightyear would put it, to infinity and beyond. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the commentators, they say this term, everlasting, conveys the strongest assertion of an infinite duration of which the Hebrew language is capable of making. The term literally means beyond the vanishing point. It's the point at which time fades into eternity. The horizon of time, you might think of it. Before time began, there was Jesus. Go back as far as you possibly can go in your mind. 50,000 years, 500,000 years, 5 million years, 5 billion years, 5 quintillion zillion years. And there was Jesus Christ. The ancient of days and the babe of Bethlehem are one and the same. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has no beginning. He has no end of days Jesus is the eternal God. As you read through chapter 5, notice how quickly Micah jumps from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. Verse 2 describes his birth. Verse 4 says that he'll be great to the ends of the earth, a reference to his kingdom and to his future glory. This is typical, though, of how the Old Testament prophets treated the two comings of Christ. Often they would couch aspects of each event in the very same prophecy. 
Messiah is born in verse 2, and by verse 6, he's fighting the Assyrian. The reference to the Assyrian is probably prophetic of the end-time Antichrist. The chapter closes with Israel in the land, cured of idolatry and reigning over her enemies. Chapters 4 and 5 are a beautiful portrait of Israel's future glory. Chapter 6 ushers us into God's courtroom. You see, the Lord has a complaint against Israel. After all that he's done for these people, how can they rebel against him? You see, he brought them out of Egypt. He delivered them from the king of Moab. They should be looking for a way to say thanks to God, to please him. Instead, they've rebelled against him and angered him. This is what Micah asks in verses 6 and 7. How can I live? In a way that will please God. Have you ever asked that question? What can I do? How can I live? To say thanks to God. To please the Lord. Micah says, With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Ten thousand rivers of oil? Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? It reminds us of what Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Never try to replace obedience with sacrifice. Giving God what we think we can afford to give him is no substitute for giving him what he actually requires. And here is God's requirements. And you know what? It's surprisingly simple what God expects of us. Real simple, three things. God wants you to do justly. God wants you to love mercy. And God wants you to walk humbly. Here's another way to express it. He wants you to work for what's right. Do justly. Do the right thing. Never be satisfied with the excuse, well, that's just the way it is. He wants you to love mercy. Don't wait for folks to deserve your love before you give it to them. Love mercy. Be gracious. Be benevolent toward people. Forgive them freely and eagerly. And then walk humbly. Always keep a low profile. Always give the glory to God. Work for what's right. Be eager to forgive. And let God have the glory. That's all he asks. Do justly. Fairness. Love mercy. Forgiveness. Walk humbly. Faithfulness. Fairness. Forgiveness. Faithfulness. Let those be the three goals in your life. And you'll live a life pleasing to God. Verses 9 through 12 expose the crooked businessman and his deceitful practices. And then verses 13 through 16 record the judgments that will come upon them as a result. In chapter 7, verse 2, Micah describes a tragic situation. He says, the faithful man has perished from the earth. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) Is there anybody left who's faithful to God? He compares trying to find a righteous man with harvesting grapes in the summertime. (laughs) Grapes aren't ready to be harvested in the summertime. You have to wait until the fall. God requires 
that we do justly, that we love mercy, that we walk humbly. But it seems to the prophet that every mother's son is a blood-sucking tick, only out for himself. Verse 3 says, they do evil with both hands. (laughs) I like that. They don't just do evil with one hand. They do evil with both hands. They're two-handed evildoers. Verses 5 and 6 are a sad commentary on human relationships. He says, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. How tragic. No wound cuts deeper. Nothing hurts more. Nothing stings longer than to be inflicted by a friend or a family member. To be betrayed. This is why Micah concludes in verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And here's a lesson I've had to learn Here's a lesson you need to learn. Hey, don't misunderstand. I believe we all need to learn to trust each other. But we also need to realize that people, every person on earth, even the people closest to us, are fallible people. They will make mistakes. They will at times let us down. And that's why we need to look to the Lord. We need to wait on His salvation. We need to trust in Him. There's one person who will never let you down. Proverbs 18 verse 24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that friend's name is Jesus. In verses 8 through 10, Micah shares his confidence in the Lord. He says, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness... The Lord will be a light to me. I love that. His enemies want to bury Micah under a mound of condemnation. Yes, he stumbled in sin, but the Lord will plead his case. The Lord still loves him. God will help him rise again. God will vindicate his faith and his trust in the eyes of his enemies. You know, guys, we have an enemy. We have an accuser. We have someone who's trying to bury us under a mound of condemnation. Revelation 12 verse 10 refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He wants to bury you. But Jesus pleads your case. Jesus loves you. And if you put your trust in Jesus, though you fall, you too will rise again. Though you sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to you. The chapter ends with an affirmation of God's love and future restoration. Israel and Judah will return from their wanderings, and God will shepherd His people again. In verse 15, He promises miracles to the Israel of the last days. As in the days, He says, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. To the end, the nations of the world will be astonished at the goodness of God toward Israel. They'll be embarrassed and ashamed for their own arrogance. You remember the word Micah means, who is like Jehovah? God's character, God's nature have been the prophet's underlying theme throughout the book. 
But in verse 18, he comes right out and he asks us the question. He says, who is a God like you? What is it that sets God apart from the rest of his creation? What is his defining characteristic? What is his distinctive trait, his signature trait? I love what he says. It's such good news. It's the reason I can get out of bed every morning. This is what makes me love the Lord more and more every day. What is God's signature trait? It's his willingness to pardon sin. He says he delights in mercy. He will subdue or he will conquer our iniquities. Even after we fall and fail, he will again have compassion on us. And check out verse 19. I got to read it again. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And notice he says all our sins, not just some of our sins, all our sins. And as we learned this morning, the Hebrew word here for all means all. All means all. God forgives us so fully, so freely. He wipes our slate clean. No one can accuse us. He casts all our sin into the deepest part of the ocean. They're gone forever. And just for good measure, God posts a no fishing sign right on the shore. What a God we serve. Who is a God like this Jehovah that we love and serve? And who is our Father? Now, on the morning of June the 6th, 1944, 3,500 Allied ships surprised the Germans occupying France. The battle that followed turned out to be the decisive conflict of World War II. It was the D-Day invasion. And that invasion was the beginning of the end for Hitler's Third Reich, with a beachhead at Normandy, the Allies were able to liberate all of Europe. Over the years, people have assumed that the expression D-Day meant disembarkment day. Some thought it meant decision day. In truth, the word D-Day simply meant D-Day. But it could have meant doomsday, at least for the Germans. It could have meant disaster day, destruction day. And the book of Naaman... Nahum describes another D-Day, or what proved to be a doomsday for another ancient power. The book of Nahum describes a battle that altered the ancient world to the same degree that the invasion of Normandy altered the modern world. We could call this letter, this prophecy, Assyria's doomsday. Nahum is an ancient war correspondent, and his prophecy predicts Babylon's invasion of the ancient city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nahum begins, the burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Nahum lived in the 7th century B.C., an approximate date for his book would be about 630 B.C. Nahum was born in Elkosh, 
Where that was, we have no idea. There is, though, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, a city that bears Nahum's name. And it's believed that the prophet spent a lot of his time there. And what was the name of that town? How about Capernaum? In essence, the village of Nahum. And this, of course, was Peter's hometown and Jesus' headquarters while he was in Galilee. The focus of Nahum, though, was the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. You remember now, a hundred years earlier, God had sent a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah to Nineveh with a message of judgment. The Ninevites repented, producing one of the greatest spiritual awakenings of all time. The revival, though, was short-lived. Within a few generations, these people reverted back to their idolatrous ways. And now Nahum is sent with a similar message as that of Jonah. Remember, Assyria and the Ninevites were brutal people. Babylon, in essence, represented man's assault on God, whereas Assyria symbolized man's assault on his fellow man. The Assyrians skinned their captives alive like we would skin a fish. They used their flesh as wallpaper. They buried folks alive inside the walls of their buildings. They liked to tie a person to the ground and then drive a stake through his gut just to watch him squirm in pain. They led defeated kings around on dog collars and made them live in kennels. They enjoyed humiliating and torturing their captives. They were a bloody and a barbaric and a ruthless and a heartless people. The lesson God teaches Nineveh is that he cares not only about how we treat him, but he also cares about how we treat each other. Mistreat your fellow man and you'll anger God. Humans are made in his image. And thus a crime against man is a sin against God. Nahum doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. Verse 2. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Hey, God loves you. God loves me. And he wants us to love him in return. But when our desires and our ambitions exclude him... He grows jealous of our affections. We were made to worship Him, not to worship other things. Notice verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit or free the wicked. In other words, God is amazingly patient. His wrath amasses slowly. God, God gives us time to repent. But don't mistake God's patience for his approval or for his apathy. Just because judgment has, hasn't come to this point doesn't mean that it won't. The wicked will be judged. They won't get off the hook. It reminds me of William Silva, 44 years old. Silva was arrested recently in San Jose, California on a burglary charge. It was Mr. Silva's 550th arrest. Can you imagine? His rap sheet fills 127 feet of computer paper. What about you and me? 
How long is our rap sheet, our sin sheet? How many times have we been arrested by the Holy Spirit? God is patient. He tolerated a serious sin for a hundred years. They were given a century-long pardon. But there comes a point when God's patience runs out. In verses 3 through 5, Nahum pictures God's power. He describes how God controls the wind and dries up the rivers and melts the mountains and causes the earth to quake. Verse 7 tells us, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. When He is forced to reject, when He's forced to judge the wicked, His fury becomes intense and fiery. It's serious. And God's judgment is always thorough. Notice verse 9. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. In other words, God's judgment doesn't need to be repeated. When God judges, He gets the job done the first time. Just ask Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 14, God tells Assyria, who at the time was the greatest empire on the earth, that her name will one day be forgotten and her idols will be cut down. Think about it today. Unless you're a Bible student or unless you're a Middle East archaeologist, you probably have never heard of Assyria or even have known of Nineveh's existence. God tells them, I will dig your grave for you are vile. Verse 15 is quoted over in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Nahum talks about the messenger who reports to Judah that the vicious Assyrians have been defeated. That's good news. That messenger would be well received. He would become a popular fellow. Paul compares him with the messenger who shares the good news of the gospel. Our enemy's sin has also been defeated through the cross of Jesus Christ. Hey, and for the people who are looking for forgiveness, that messenger is well received and will become a dear friend. Chapter 2 paints a picture of Nineveh's conquest. It's like watching a football game, really. Nahum gives us a play-by-play, and all along he sort of sprinkles in some of the color color commentary. Listen to verse 1. He says, He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort. Watch the road. Strengthen your flanks. Fortify your power mightily. He warns in verse 2 that Assyria has emptied out Israel. Now God is about to restore His people. In verses 3 and 4, Nahum describes how the Assyrians are dressed, how they're armed. Verse 6 tells us how the fortress of Nineveh would be conquered. We're told the gates of the rivers are open and the palace is dissolved. Verse 8 reads, Nineveh of old was like a pool of water. Now they flee away. In other words, water and a river helped to defeat Nineveh. There is a Greek historian. His name is Diodorus Siculus. He lived around 20 B.C. And he wrote about the fall of Nineveh. He said that it was due to abnormal flooding of the Tigris River. Two tributaries of the Tigris flowed under the city's walls. And when the river swelled its banks, the floods washed out two and a half mile stretch of the wall of the city of Nineveh 
creating a gaping hole in her side, if you will. Her defenses were made vulnerable. She was open. Nineveh suddenly became easy pickings for the invading Babylonians. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Nahum also predicted, with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. Isn't it amazing that 20 years in advance, God predicted through the prophet Nahum the precise means by which he would conquer the city of Nineveh. Chapter 3 begins, Woe to the bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The city's cruelty was the crime that sealed her judgment. I read of an 18-year-old gang member recently who was arrested in Milwaukee for murdering a 15-year-old girl. At his arrest, this young man was quoted as saying, You know, this is going to wreck my whole summer. I'm not going to be able to go to Summerfest. It's not like she was the president or anything. She was just a girl. Can you believe that? But let me say, when a society no longer believes that men and women were created by God, created in His image and in His likeness, when they reject the sanctity of human life, that society will grow increasingly cold and cruel and violent and barbaric. The rash of school shootings in our country is just another example. This is what happened in ancient Nineveh, and it's happening again all over in modern America. Verse 3 gives the body count. Countless corpses lay on the ground. Verses 5 through 7 tell us that God's plan is to shame Nineveh, make her a spectacle. Verses 8 through 11 compares the fall of Nineveh with the defeat of the ancient town No. Amon, that was an Egyptian city, by the way. It was one of the beautiful cities of Egypt. It was the treasure of the Nile. It was a remote and wealthy city. You'd probably recognize it by its Egyptian name, Thebes. And guess who conquered the city of Thebes? Assyria. In 662 B.C., the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal surrounded Thebes. And in short order, sacked the city. Yet he knew that he would be unable to rule the city from so far away. So he ordered the population to be placed into slavery. And he slaughtered its children in the streets. His goal was to terrorize the other Egyptian cities into surrender. That was done by the Assyrian king. Now, God is telling Assyria that she's going to receive the very same treatment that she dished out on the Egyptians. You see, what goes around, it comes around. Be careful. Verse 12 says that Nineveh is ripe for judgment. Verse 13 through 15 says she's vulnerable to an invading army. The expression here, your people in your midst are women, could be a reference to homosexuals. In its latter days, Nineveh became a haven for homosexuals. And some scholars take Nahum as saying that the effeminate characteristics of its men made the city vulnerable to defeat. In other words, they lacked the guts and the grits needed for combat. This should shed some light 
on the wisdom of homosexuals in the military. Verse 17 says that her commanders will fly away like locusts. Verse 19 sums up God's judgment on Nineveh and the Assyrians. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? I want to read to you an excerpt from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Ancient History. The disappearance of the Assyrian people will always remain a unique and striking phenomena of ancient history. Other similar kingdoms and empires have indeed passed away, but the people lived on with the Assyrians, a nation which had existed 2,000 years and had ruled a wide area, lost its independent character. You see, the historian marvels, but God's word predicted it far in advance. The prophet Nahum and the judgment against the Assyrians. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for these two Old Testament prophets. And we thank you for their message, Lord, both of the seriousness of sin and the penalties it brings, but also, Lord, the wonderful assurances of your forgiveness, of your willingness to pardon, of your willingness to forgive all our sin and cast it even to the depths of the sea if we'll just turn to you with a repentant heart. Help us to do that tonight, Lord. Help us to walk this week in a way that pleases you, Lord. Help us make a commitment tonight to live our lives this week in that simple way that Micah prescribes. Help us, Lord, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Lord, we love you. We want to be your people, not just in name only, but in nature. We pray your spirit will continue his work in our heart in the days ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.